welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. And I want to continue my series that I started last week called Holy, Holy. Holy spelt W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, holy. You and I being holy, holy. And we looked at a few thoughts last week. And if you remember, I started by highlighting that song of, what's his name? Shannon Knoll, that's it. What about me? It isn't fair. I've had enough and I want my share. Can't you see? I want a little, but you just take more than you give. What about me? And it's kind of like an anthem for the culture and generation that we live in. And unfortunately, that's even crept into the church. We have a what about me theology. And what about me understanding. And this series is all about breaking free from that kind of thinking. Because that kind of thinking is not going to get us anywhere. Because what is bred is a people that want to please themselves instead of pleasing God. As Christians, we are to live a life that is holy, acceptable and pleasing to God, not pleasing to ourselves. And there were some long pauses and there was some silence, you know, as we reflected upon the weightiness of God's holiness last week. Because we looked at the fact that God is a holy God. And we saw that His holiness is manifested in His works. His holiness is manifested in His hatred for sin. His holiness is manifested in the things that He does. And so we know God's a holy God because of what we see. The fact that He hates evil reflects His holiness. People often say, you know, if God's a God of love, why would He send people to hell? Well, one, God doesn't send people to hell. But God created a place for evil beings to dwell. Who would agree that if we had a a justice system that didn't penalise injustice, it wouldn't be just? And so if we had no prisons on the earth because we loved everyone, that wouldn't be loving everyone. Oh, come on. I said I'd make it easy for you to respond. This is good. This is flipping amazing. This is awesome. You're not going to hear better preaching than this. This is as good as it gets. At least for me anyway. <laughs> you know, we're just going to love everyone. And so we're not going to have any jails. And the moment we keep those people that do bad things out there, they do more harm. And so that's ultimately not love. And so God created a place where Lucifer, a fallen angel, and one third of the angels were to dwell for all time and eternity because of their rebellion against God. God created a place for them to dwell because He loves us. Just as we have prisons for people to dwell that have done the wrong thing in order for people to get on with their lives, free from some of the carnage that would be caused if those people weren't locked up. Does that make sense? And we do that because it's love. And so God's holiness and His love for humanity is seen in all of His works, in His hatred for sin. Secondly, we looked at the fact that holiness leads to healthiness. And that's God's first concern for His universe is its moral health. A.W. Tozer said, God is holy and He has made holiness the moral condition necessary for the health of the universe. And we know in Scripture that Jesus is coming back for a healthy church, a bride without spot, blemish or wrinkle. It's our responsibility and our God-given privilege to be a healthy people. And the way we become healthy is adopting the holy ways of God. 
For example, God had a law, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. And you know, if we actually did those things, the world would be healthier. Isn't that fair to say? Can you imagine if, 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 if every man you know, just loved his wife and never coveted someone else's wife? Surely, surely, surely the world would be a better place. And yet when God has these laws in place, we think, oh, he's such a hard taskmaster. But he's actually a loving God. He loves us. He says, I hate divorce. He never said he hated the divorcee, but he hates divorce because what divorce does to families and what divorce does for people. And so he says, I hate it. And I hope through this series that we will have a greater hatred for certain things. Because I think some of us are so compliant and so, so passionless that we just embrace everything. He, without a complaint, will perish. You know, Habakkuk had a vision that he wrote down, but it was birthed out of a complaint. I think the thing that should drive the church is a complaint against certain things. Because of our love for a holy God and, and, and certain things that we're not seeing on the earth today should drive us and motivate us to be a voice in our nation, to be a voice in our world, to be a voice in our shopping centre, to be a voice in our schools. And so firstly, God is holy. Secondly, God, uh, holiness leads to healthiness, which brings me to my third point, And that is this, that you and I, we are called to be holy. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Holy moly. Bad joke. Gets worse. Holy cow, Batman. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Be holy because. Ever say because. Because I am holy. That word because is really important. It doesn't say be holy as I am holy. You and I cannot be holy like God is holy. His, holy, his holiness is beyond imagination. It's beyond description. It's beyond imitation. His holiness stands alone. God is the standard of holiness. His holiness is an absolute, pure, unadulterated Holiness. And it's a holiness he cannot and will not share with any of his creation. Having said that, while you and I can never be holy like God is holy, we can partake in his holiness through Jesus. Do you catch that? So we can't be holy like God but we can partake in his holiness because of Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, it says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in my suffering for the gospel by the power of God, for who has saved us and called us into a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of the pure, sorry, because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Holiness is to reflect what God is. He's clean and pure. And holiness is a process. In other words, 
when you and I come to God out of response to the goodness of Christ, he receives us as his adopted sons and daughters. And he loves us just as we are. We come to him in this lumber clay. We just come to him with all of our faults, with all of our sins, with all of our impurity, with a very real lack of holiness. And God in his love for us says, I receive you as my son. I receive you as my daughter. Not because of your works, but because of the works of Jesus, who was spotless, pure and holy in every way. The Bible says Jesus was tempted and tested in every way, just as you and I are. Yet he was without sin. And so we come to him. Not because of anything we have done, but because of this incredible work of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And we can't make ourselves holy. Just like this piece of plasticine can't shape itself without any help, without any assistance. It will just stay there like that forever. And this is where God gets involved in our lives. Because this piece of clay, to become something significant, needs a little bit of help. And you and I, to become like God, we need help. We can't become like God in and of ourselves. We need His help. But here's the thing, when He starts to help us, it doesn't always feel good. Can you imagine as I start squeezing this plasticine, if it could talk, it'd probably go, ah, Stop it! And when we're saying, stop it! God's saying, I haven't even started yet. And then God gets his heavenly rolling pin. You ever felt God's rolling pin? You know, what are you doing, God? I mean, when it's light, it's nice. Oh, that's nice. But when the, when the pressure comes, that's when the pain comes. I mean, that doesn't hurt anyone. That's like, oh, yeah. That's like, oh, yeah, a bit lower. I've got a sick church. I really have. Get your mind out of the gutter just for a minute, please. But it's when God starts putting pressure. Ah, because he has a plan. He says he saved us. Thank God for that. But he's also called us. And he has a plan for us. And you know what the plan ultimately is? It's that we would become more like him. That we would look like him. God's not going to look like us. This is a pathetic illustration, I know. (laughs) You're a monster. (laughs) Don't eat me, don't eat me. You're a monster. Anyway, that's for our Shrek fans out there. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger last week, now it's the gingerbread man. If I can just humor you for a minute, 
And can we just imagine that this is the image of Christ? (laughs) It's not very inspiring, I know. Us. God wants us to make us more like Christ. And so his image. And he looks at our lives and says, you know what? That's got to go. You can't do that anymore. You who just, you know, you, got, you, know, you just love sleeping around with all the girls, you can't do that anymore. Because Jesus didn't do that. We're becoming more like him. He's not becoming more like us. You who are just lie and cheat and steal all the time. <laughs> See, many Christians are looking like this. We're kind of, we're getting there, but we're not there. And this is the work of sanctification. It's a process. It's the process by where you and I have been set apart for a holy life. And that's why sometimes when you come to church, you just don't feel comfortable because God is just dealing with something. Someone else is getting blessed, but you're getting cut. Because his plan is to get rid of all the junk that's not of him so that you and I end up looking more like Christ. You'll never forget that in a hurry, will you? We're being sanctified. This notion that you can be saved and just live like you used to, it's got nothing to do with Christianity. Now, I know we're not perfect, but the Bible says we should aim for perfection. Because He is perfect. Because He is holy. Through Christ, you and I can be holy. And so we separate and we set ourselves apart to be like God. Just like I did in marriage. Before I got married, I was available, ladies. I was. I was just like, I was available. What's so funny about that? But then I get married and I set my life apart to one woman. Sorry, ladies. I know it's just, I've just, I know they've just ruined some of your days, but that's just the way it is. I'm a heartbreaker. What can I say? I just. Doesn't make me perfect as a husband, but I want to live to please my wife. It's not just about me anymore. I can't just do what I used to do as a single man. I have to think of my wife now. And it's not to say that I can't go off and do something with my guy mates, but I have to consider my wife. And so there's some things God, you know, he's not saying is wrong, but he just wants us to consider him before we just jump into everything. And so before I just go out with my mates, I just say, hey, Katha, this is what we're thinking of doing. You know, what's on? And, And so I consider her because I've been set apart to her and for her. 
This is the work of sanctification, I believe. And as a result of me being set apart, there's things that I do do and there's things that I don't do. As a married man, there's things I can do now and there's things I can't do. There are some privileges and there are some responsibilities. And I believe one of the reasons that God wants you to withhold from sexual intimacy before you're married is because that's part of the privileges of being married. And the trouble is we start embracing the privileges without the responsibilities and we breed a lazy, immature people. And that's one of the biggest problems in the earth today. We have selfish, lazy, immature people because they haven't learned to take responsibility. They've just taken the privileges. And so for me, there's things that I can do for my wife for example, the other day, Kath was running late and, and you know, more, than, more often than not, I mean like every time really, Kath will make the bed. But the other day she was running late and I knew she was in a hurry and without being asked, I just thought, you know, I'm going to make the bed for her. And I did that and later on in the day she said, ah, oh, thanks for making the bed. I pleased her. I blessed her. Now here's the thing, in my wedding, uh, in, my, in my marriage vows and my wedding contract, there wasn't a thing you must make the bed every now and then. <laughs> See, this is what we do wrong with Christianity. We turn it into a religion. We turn it into what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. That's not the point. Here's why I did that for Kath, because I know her. I knew her enough to know that she was busy. I knew her enough to know that it would bless her and please her. Kath's a real acts of service girl. And so anytime I help out, and remove her of doing some of the work, it's going to please her. That was not drawn up in a contract. I learned that through being with her and learning to know her. So I started dating her many, many years ago, and, and I knew her then. Some 26 years later, I know her more. And so it's easier for me to please her now because I know her more. I don't have to guess. Some of the things in the early days, I'm like guessing, what do you want? I just don't know what you want. There's things that Kath can do, like a little look. I mean, honestly, she sits on the front row at times and she'll just look at me. She's a... And I know what that means. Why? Because I know her. And because I know her and know what she likes and what she doesn't like, I can live a life that's pleasing to her. There was not a list of what you're allowed to do, not allowed to do, this, that and the other. As I've set my life apart... And given my life to her, as her husband, all the days of my life, till death do us part, I'm changing and becoming a better husband because I know her more. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians, it'll be up on the screen, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, or is it 17? My prayer for you, church, is that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you may know him more. The work of sanctification and the work of a holy life starts with knowing the one who is holy. Without knowing the one who is holy, all you have is religious works. And religious works without knowing him don't count for anything. 
There's a very gross, gross, gross scripture in Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah says, your works, your religious works are like filthy rags. And the word filthy rags is talking about the women's monthly cycle. He said, that's how appalling your works are to me. God doesn't want your works, he wants you. Your works without knowledge of him means nothing to him. Jesus said it this way. There are some of you who have prophesied, the scriptures will come up, I'm just, I'm just going with it, all right. He says, some of you have prophesied and you've spoken in tongues and you attended church your whole life and, and you never swore and you never got drunk. And you think you're going to be in heaven because of all these good things you've done. And Jesus says this, I tell you, there's coming a day when I will say, away from me. Why? Because I never knew you. The foundation of Christianity is not works. It's not striving to be better. It's not striving to be holier. It's not striving to be like God. Christianity is knowing him. If you don't know him, you're not a Christian. You may have been to this service or this church every day since we've been in this new building for the last year. It does not make you a Christian. It doesn't even make you any holier. Because the cry of God's heart is, I want you. The cry of God's heart is for you to get to know Him. And here's the thing. If you really know someone, because you love someone, your lifestyle will change. See, I don't sleep around with other women because I love my wife. Can you imagine what I would be saying to you as a people and to my wife if I said, no, no, God loves me anyway. I'm just going to sleep around because God loves me. What would that make? What would that say to Kath? What would that say to you? What would that say about marriage? So here's the thing. Being holy doesn't mean works. But being holy doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. The foundation is all important. And our foundation for a holy life must come out of an intimate knowledge of who God is. Because it starts with knowing Him. Paul says, I pray that they would know Him. My prayer for the church, this is probably the prayer I've prayed more than anything else for this church, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened. And I always say our hearts, because it's not you and me, it's us in it together. God, open the eyes of our heart that we may know you better, because to know you is to love you. And the very same guy who wrote that went on to say in Galatians 5 verse 19, 
The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality. That's not an act of God. That's an act of the human nature. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envies, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's humility, and it's self-control. I think the order of those nine gifts are incredible. That on one end you've got love. And on the other end, you've got self-control. And everything else in between. If you have love in your heart for God and love in your heart for people, and you have self-control, you'll be able to do all the rest. But it starts with love. It starts with knowledge of Him. So if we take this message and try to be holier, you've missed the point. One, because you won't be able to be holy enough. And two, even if you were, it wouldn't mean anything. You know, Jesus was an incredible example to us of this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What do we see here? We see his love for the Father and self-control. He loved God enough to get up early. Solitude with the Father liberated Jesus from needing people as a crutch. Jesus returned empowered and enlightened. And this intimacy with God the Father meant that he would never choose a relationship out of a need or lack within himself. See, what you need to understand is Jesus got up early, went and prayed, and then he chose the 12 disciples that they might be with him. But he didn't choose them as a crutch for himself. He didn't choose them because he had a lack or a need in and of himself. He chose them that he might be with them. But time with the Father helped him to live free from the control of people. There are many, many people that do many, many good things out of an insecurity of how people will perceive them. And I've learned that the only way over that and through that is time with God. Getting to know Him. Because when you know Him, it doesn't matter so much what people think of you. You can't stand up here and speak and please everyone all the time. I know that. And there's an incredible pressure if I'm trying to please everyone. I believe that's why there's so much burnout in ministry. But if I make my aim to please the Father, I can do that. I can't please all of you. Certainly not all the time. Some of you I can't please ever. 
It's like everything I do say and wear sucks. But Jesus was free from the control of man because he never used a relationship to get things he could only get from God. Things like acceptance, love and approval. In Luke chapter 3 verse 21, Jesus is about to be baptised as an example for us to be baptised. He says when all the peoples were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too and he was praying, sorry, as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and the voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. See, some of you need to hear this from God for yourselves. Jesus was standing there. The voice of the father said, you are my son. His identity was found in his father. You may not have a father, You may have had an abusive father, but there is a heavenly father who knows you. And if you let him, he will be your father, your heavenly father, one who loves you and knows you. You are my son. Identity. Whom I love. Acceptance. The great thing about this, Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't done any miracles yet. God just loved him because he loved him. This wasn't a works-based thing. This is a relationship thing. Religion is based upon works. Christianity is based upon a relationship. You want to live a holy life? Get to know Him. I thank God. I grew up in a home where I felt that love and acceptance regardless of what I did. When I was 12 years old, I got caught shoplifting. And my dad says to me, because I was broken, I was hurt, I, I was, I was, I, I'd beaten up on myself. And my dad comes home from work and he looks at me, he goes, what's been going on? And, and uh, to cut a long story short, I looked at him and, and I said, I've been caught shoplifting. Tears streaming out my face. I mean, I was grieving over my wrongdoing. And my dad looks at me and I'll never forget these words. It, it formed and shaped my, my life and how I think today. He said, Tony, and I think, here goes. I've got pillow stuffed down my pants. I think I'm, I'm finished. My friends who were with me said, hey, we won't see you for another year. They think I'm going to be grounded. And my dad says to me, Tony, you should have been quicker. I'm like, I don't suppose I'll be needing them then. Now, here's the thing. My dad wasn't condoning stealing. But a good father, a true father can discern the situation. He saw the brokenness, he saw the repentance, he saw the hurt, he saw the pain. And I've grown up with a very real sense that I'm loved, no matter what I do. And that love doesn't force me to be willful and want to do my own thing. It it actually causes me to want to do the right thing. Because I'm so appreciative. And you know what? That's not true for most of you here, I know that. And you can't do anything about your past. But you can embrace this incredible family and allow me and some of the elders and some of the gracious people here to father you and help you through this. Instead of using your past as an excuse for why you feel the way you do and think the way you do, say thanks be to God that he's put me in a church that has experienced something different than what you have and learn. Jesus hasn't done one miracle And the Father just loves him and he loves you. 
Some of you are trying, and it's not about trying, it's just trusting. He loves you. You can't do any more than you're doing right now for him to love you anymore. He loves you. He says, with him I'm well pleased. There's that approval. Identity, acceptance, and approval must be found in God. If you don't find it in God, you'll try and find it in others, and you'll be their puppet for the rest of your days. Do you know how freeing it is to stand up here and to be free enough to be me? That's true freedom. And it's for that kind of freedom that Jesus came to set you free. But not just set you free, but to keep you free. I find so many Christians, they get set free, then they get into bondage again. They get set free from the world, then they get bound up by religion. And I believe one of the mandates of my life, which is many, but one of them is just to keep God's people free. And freedom doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to do. It means knowing him more, falling in love with him more, so that your attitude towards doing the wrong thing changes. And your attitude towards doing the right thing changes. Jesus never relied on people's opinions because he knew what people were like. People are so fickle. You're a hero one day, day, then you're a zero the next. Jesus knew that. Remember, just before Jesus was crucified, the people were welcoming him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king, let's kill him. I was like, what? People are fickle. Paul has a shipwreck. They make their way back to the island of Malta. He's collecting firewood. This snake reps onto his arm. The people say, ah, he must be a condemned man. He survived the uh, shipwreck, but he hasn't survived this. Ah, guilty. Then after many t- a long time, he doesn't die. Then they said, ah, oh, change your mind. He's a God. And they start wanting to sacrifice to him. One minute they've written him off as a demonized, possessed man. Now they're saying he's an angel. That's people, fickle. There's so much burnout and so much hurt and so much... Stuff that goes on in people's world because we're trying to please people that will never be pleased. But we can live before an audience of one. You know, for me to ask you, how did I preach today? It's like, it's, I'm, I'm going to hide into nothing. Because some of you will go, oh, that was amazing. And you'd be right. Some of you would go, that sucked. And you'd be wrong. And some of you would go, what, is he finished? (laughs) Others are like, oh, it's all right. I've heard better. It's not bad, not good, just something. That happens every week. Can you imagine how my life would look if I listened to all of that? All I want to know is God. Did I share something of what you would have shared if you were here? That's all I really want to do. And if he says yes, can I say this lovingly? I love you, but stuff you. I'm like, you know, God, I love you, but... That's how I feel. I love you, but stuff you. I'm just like, God. That's why I preach, so we can become like that, figuratively speaking. 
Where's our band? Do you know God? This song that we sung about heaven is true for those that know God. It's not true for every person. For every person that knows God, when we pass away and leave this life, there'll be no weeping. But for every person who doesn't know God, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The exact opposite. My simplest way to define heaven to you is it's better than our best day on planet earth. Hell is a very real place and the way I can best describe hell to you is it's worse than our worst day. And where you spend eternity comes down to whether or not you knew God. And I'm not talking about the God of comfort. I'm not talking about the God of your stomach. I'm not talking about the God of sport. I'm not talking about the God of false religion. I'm talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, God. I'm talking about creator God. I'm talking about the God who had a plan of redemption through sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, there is only one way to the Father. And that's through me. There is no other way to get to God's home. Jesus is the gate, he's the door, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. He represented God the Father in every way. He fulfilled the letter of the law in every way. He never coveted, he never stole. He was pure perfection on earth. Which meant he was the only man who's ever walked this earth and never deserved to die but he chose to die. He went upon a cross. Why? Well, you see, our sin has a penalty attached to it, a death sentence. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will die. There is a death penalty over disobeying God, a death sentence. And because every one of us in this room are sinners, every one of us have committed high treason against God, every one of us have rebelled against God, every one of us have been like Lucifer and said, I want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. Every one of us has lived unholy lives. And so we all deserve to die. And ultimately, we will die. We will pass from this life to another. But because of Jesus and his sinless perfection, he said, I want to die on behalf of my people. I want to die so they will not have to die. It's a little bit like those wartime stories where you see an old man who stands in the gap on behalf of a young man and says, if you must kill someone, kill me. Let this young man live. 
And so the firing squad get the young man off the pole and put the old man on and they shoot because they realize someone has to die. Someone has to pay. And the old man takes a life so a young man can live his life. That's what Jesus did for us. He went upon the cross so that you and I would not have to experience the death he experienced. But here's the thing. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father knowing that he would indeed be raised again. And when he was raised again, he took control of hell, the devil and demons once and for all. That whosoever would come to Jesus and know Jesus would never perish, but would have abundant life, but more than that, everlasting life. And that is the thing that keeps me going. This thought that one day I will see him face to face. Right now, I see but through a mirror dimly. I have a glimpses of the goodness of God. But my vision is so often so distorted. But there's coming a day. It's a day that Dave Cox experienced a week ago when he stood before Jesus and saw him face to face. And I don't think he remembers. I don't think he's looking down on us right now. It would bring too much pain. And the Bible says there's no pain, there's no suffering. I don't believe those in heaven are looking down over us. I mean, that would, that would cause you to cry. And yet there is no tears in heaven. It's a place of incredible beauty as the angels sing holy, holy, holy. And Dave joins a great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. And he lives today with no regret. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And God bless.